Jonathan, it's Lent 3. We are here at Jesus Christ Superstar, the Zenith. I think it's the end of Act 1 is the cleansing of the temple. Uh-huh. Which, uh, which follows the synoptic account, not the Johannine account then, because... Yeah, except it's a, it, the Jesus Christ Superstar is largely based off the Johannine account. And I have a lot of theological beef with Jesus Christ Superstar, which we're not going to talk about um, directly in this episode, but we are going to talk about... That would be a surprise to me if we were. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we are going to talk about the ramifications of anti-Judaism and what exactly uh, we think as two pastors, not as two experts. If you want experts, like there are other podcasts. Like elsewhere. Um, but two pastors, what we think you can do with this text. Yeah. Uh, and really grateful to have had a wonderful clergy Bible study with some friends across the pond. Uh, <laughs> uh, yesterday that has really helped frame it. Um, so thanks, Ross and Haley. And let's get to it. Hi, I'm the Reverend Lizzie McManusdale. And I'm the Reverend Jonathan McManusdale. And this is Fathers Know Best. A podcast where we as an Episcopal clergy couple talk about the Bible, preaching, and other holy mischief. Shall you read the gospel lesson for this week from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22? I will. A reading from the Gospel of John. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for my house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for forty-six years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Mm, Thanks be to God. Okay, so right off, um, I think this is going to come in two parts. We're going to first do some deconstruction and some destabilizing and some some like words to the wise of what we think a preacher is tasked with doing with this text. And that is right away, you got to understand that the Gospel of John is the last of the four Gospels that are canon in the Christian Testament, the New Testament, the Bible. It's the last one written. Um, Jonathan, what date was it written? John? Uh Uh-huh. like 90s, mm-hmm. like the 90s, right? So this is considerably later. <laughs> I just pictured the Backstreet Boys, right? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> right. If that if that helps, though, like all those little mnemonics, like uh-huh. those little clues that help you remember things, <laughs> just like Backstreet's back, it's John. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and so <laughs> later than def- considerably later than the synoptics. Yeah. So just a quick refresher. So in terms of the Christian Testament or the Second Testament or the New Testament, uh, the the oldest texts in that are the epistles from Paul and the Pauline epistles. Um, so those are written prior to the destruction of the temple, which was in oh, seventy common error. I'm so sorry that my calendar, but we're just gonna keep going. Um, so those are the oldest documents, you might say. Well, I guess you can document just means 
a thing mm-hmm. that exists. Um, those are the oldest documents that we have. And then the Gospel of Mark is the oldest gospel. It's somewhat debated whether it's written right before or right after the destruction of the temple. Yeah, most people think after. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's this sort of mysterious... Uh, gospel source that scholars call Q, which, which is, also, is the existence of which is also debated. But debated. A lot of people think it does exist. Yeah, that um, the sort of theory goes that Q was passed around, and and um, the Gospels of Luke and Matthew were written like in the Gospel of Luke. I write to you, most excellent Theophilus, uh, to put down a mm-hmm. full account. Um, were written uh, synthesizing. Uh, material that was in Mark and material supposedly purportedly that was in Q, but there's also, I think if you take a more literal approach, um, Luke and Matthew have their own sort of narrative accounts that have been Mm -hmm. passed down through oral tradition. And remember, in an oral culture, this isn't like when somebody in the receiving line at church says, I'd love to see you at 2 p.m. on Wednesday for coffee, because that just goes in one ear and out the other, right? (laughs) Right? Like, I have to write it down and put, like, 12 reminders in my phone, because that is how we remember and preserve information. But in a culture where not everybody could write, what was spoken was much more highly valued and much more remembered and passed down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's then a storytelling culture, a storytelling culture, right? And then we get to the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. which comes approximately twenty years after the destruction of the temple, mm-hmm. and really at a moment when Christianity, which starts very much in Second Temple Judaism, mm-hmm. is emerging not only just as a sect, but as its own religion, and it's it's really. Um, the Gospel of John repeatedly says things like the Jews. No other um, gospel does that. Does that now? The Pauline epistles sometimes say my Jew or Greek, like in the Book of Galatians. But we don't have time to get into all that. Um, but what is significant about the Gospel of John is that this is written for and by and of a community of people who are polemically trying to figure out their identity. Right. Who, who are they if they aren't Jewish? And yep. so sometimes this really sharp language, when we hear it in the 21st century, we're like, oh, God. I mean, like, that is some really uh, sharp condemnation and really clear mm-hmm. lines when Jesus was, in fact, Jewish, but a very specific kind of Jewish. Right. A second right. temple uh, practitioner of Judaism. So right. just like right off the bat, <laughs> um, it's important to establish that because there is so much history of anti-Judaism, which becomes anti-Semitism, yes. which the Gospel of John is used to justify. Absolutely. Like Good Friday being a day historically of horrific um, murders of Jewish people by Christians. Yeah. So like, and that still lives in our theology. Anytime somebody's like, oh, well, you know, that old fashioned old covenant, that outdated part of scripture. Mm-hmm. That Old Testament God. Oh, God. Yeah, that yeah. drives me crazy. That's a heresy, by the way. Yeah, Marcionism. Um, but, like, we can't... And this is true in progressive Christianity as well. Quote, unquote, progressive Christianity. I hear a lot of people saying, you know, well, do you wear clothes of mixed fabrics? Well, that's an outdated Bible verse. Therefore, the it's Leviticus... taking the Bible literally. Uh, right, right. Yeah. And therefore, you know, you're silly for... <laughs> silly being a substituted word there. You're silly for believing that um, two people who love each other of the same gender are uh, wrong. Y- y'all, that is that is um, a kind of anti-Semitic argument, actually, right. to be we, making we can have a more We can have a more sophisticated theology of deconstruction and reconstruction that doesn't rely on things like that to be be fully inclusive, to be celebratory of 
queer folks. Yeah, and yeah. plenty of Jewish people also are absolutely LGBTQIA2 spirit and or are affirming and have Definitely. just what we call the Old Testament. Yes. So, yes. Um, okay, so now that we've gotten that clarification. Yes. I think the second thing to, to add with this second temple piece um, that's really striking to me um, comes in the verse, he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. So Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about what is happening with the sell of these animals? Yes. So um, so in order to make a sacrifice in the temple, either a um, sacrifice of atonement or uh, there's all sorts of different kinds of sacrifices that um, were made in the Jerusalem temple. To when God. a baby was born. When a baby was born, right. When, after a mother had given birth. Right, right. After a person, rather, had given birth. Right. So there were lots of reasons uh, that you might go and sacrifice in the temple. Um, and so, and not everybody could bring their animal with them from wherever they were traveling from. And so this sort of system developed outside of the temple where they could change um you know, they could buy animals for sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they also, this bit about money changers was um, people coming in from, this is, you know, this was uh, at a point of, of diaspora for mm-hmm. uh, the Jewish people. So people from all over the ancient Near East would come to mm-hmm. uh, Jewish people from um, all over the ancient Near East would come. And so they had all sorts of different kinds of coins. Um, and so the money changers would change those into temple currency um, so that they could buy those sacrifices. Um, Which these sacrifices are a fulfillment of the law. Right. It is l- explicitly laid out in um, in the Torah, meaning the mm-hmm. first five books of mm-hmm. um, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, that there are different levels of animal sacrifice and the two doves being those for who have the least amount of money. So Mm -hmm. poor folks, um, as a, as a legitimate offering to God. And in the gospel of Luke in chapter two, Jesus's family does this. So Mary's purification, her ritual cleansing after giving birth, they, it explicitly says that they offer two doves, um, which is an indication of their social status. And Jesus himself, although that is like cross-pollinating gospels, like we are allowed to do that because it is the Bible. Like, mm-hmm. like ultimately, while it's important to take things within their singular book context, scripture does speak to each other. Yes, yes. Like it's all together for a reason. So, so this is a system Jesus himself has participated in. Yeah. And I think also, you know, I was raised to sort of see the temple, the temple sacrifice system as like really barbaric and harsh. Yeah, I definitely um, was too. And that sort of thing. And like, it is visceral. Oh, it's very visceral. Especially as we sit with two cats curled around our laps. (laughs) Right. right. Um, One, but one, it was a very different culture where like um, you had to, viscerally, you know, kill animals to eat. There was no H-E-B to go buy somebody who killed your meat for you. Exactly. And it wasn't just an arbitrary, like, um, offering to the gods. It was that, you know, it was a worship to God, but it was also a feast. Yes. Right? The animals were eaten. The animals were eaten. It was like, you know... What was sacrificed was the blood. Yeah. An amazing barbecue for all the people around. Mm -hmm. And also the way that they would pay, at least, at least... Taking the um, taking the letter of the law, the Torah, the way you would pay the priests in the temple, and um, as two people who are priests who are frequently paid 
with not like actual salaried, but like like maybe paid is the wrong word. Gifted uh-huh. meat. I remember our first year in Texas. <laughs> I came home one day and there was a giant refrigerated box, like a styrofoam box, outside our apartment. And I walked inside, and I, was, I like brought it inside, and I was like, Jonathan, what is this? And we both opened it up, and it was full of Omaha steaks. From a parishioner. From a parishioner. I mean, right. it was so, it was so sweet, right. and we were just so like, oh, oh my God, we are here in Texas. And it was very tasty. So, uh, anyway. Right. Anyway, we are, we are way off. Where, where are we going, Lizzie? Well, I was just bringing that up as like, it's not quite so, I mean, it is a system that is thousands of years old, but mm-hmm. it is not so outdated, actually, if you think about it. Right. And, um, right. And so I don't think Jesus here was critiquing the temple sacrifice system right. itself and like, and therefore the entirety of second temple Judaism. I do think Jesus was making that whip of cords and quote unquote, cleansing the temple, um, because Jesus valued it, mm. right? And and perhaps it had become corrupt and people were, and the money changers were perhaps um, exploiting those who were poor um, by charging them more money for their sacrifices than was warranted or any number of things could, could have yeah. been happening. I know I've been taught that, but as we were... <clears throat> Double checking our sources this morning, I could not find that in any of our commentaries. Or I couldn't my notes. either. So, I just remember there was this one moment I was like, "Oh, I need to remember this" because I was in Jody Magnus's Second Temple Judaism class at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she said, "This is why Jesus cleansed the temple." And of course, I can't exactly remember. It was very specific. So, if any of you are listening and you were in that class and you remember, <laughs> please tell me because I can't remember. Anyway, also like. You know, when I was in college, I still took notes longhand, and so a lot of those notes are just long gone. Oh, is... I couldn't read my notes that I took longhand. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, but I think, okay, I'm going to use this whip of chords as the, the hinge to, to turn now. Okay. So, so first and foremost, let's destabil- we've destabilized some anti-Judaism, okay? Do not get up there in the pulpit or in your Bible study and say that Jesus hated Jews, because that is wrong. <laughs> And violent. And And I don't Um, think any of you will. No, but I I think it's just important to say that. So um, we get to, uh, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, making a whip of cords. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, Jesus makes this whip. He doesn't come in with a weapon, and he has to forge it himself. Which really paints, you know, you can sort of use uh, your imagination here to really see the scene of, like, Jesus entering and, like, I don't know, picking up straw, picking up rope. I mean, like, he has to make it himself, which is going to take a minute, right? And you can see the anticipation building. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and in all four Gospels, there is this scene of him turning over tables and uh, shouting at people. And in, I mean, in my mind, I always pictured, because it was sort of the first time I was exposed to it, the Jesus Christ superstar scene where he's like sings, my temple should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Um, John is the only one with a whip of courts. Uh-huh. John's like, I'm going to level y'all up. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, And... Uh, this is really striking, and we had a really, um, I think, powerful conversation about the violence and the nonviolence of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you can escape the fact that Jesus is wielding a weapon, but he is also wielding a weapon that's about to be used against him. Mm-hmm. Because this is near the Passover, which means it is near his crucifixion. 
And part of the um, events of Jesus's crucifixion includes Pontius Pilate commanding him being lashed 39 times. Mm-hmm. And so I, I read this. This is, all right, let's be super clear. This is a Lizzie reading, not the, this is, you know, we have some degrees in this, but if you really want deep biblical wisdom. This, no, that is deep biblical wisdom. This is an interpretation. That's, Thank you. That's yeah. what we do. That's yeah. what we do. We, yeah. we offer an interpretation, yeah. not the interpretation. And an interpretation. interpretation. So the Lizzie interpretation, which I'm not the first to come up with this, I'm sure, but um, is that Jesus is is crafting a weapon that is going to be used against him. Mm-hmm. And therefore he is subverting its use mm-hmm. by using it if we follow this sort of traditional interpretation of challenging the exploitation uh, and the religious religiously veiled persecution that is happening in the temple. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is important. And I also think um, one of the experiences I often reflect on <laughs> when, I, well, just being a, being a pastor, um, several years ago, Jonathan and I were really lucky um, to take a beautiful vacation in Ireland. Mm. And we were on a sheep farm and yes. it was shearing season. And the farmers uh, were kind enough to let us observe as they sheared these sheep. <laughs> Say that five times fast. And, uh, you know, we're such city slickers. I mean, me more so than you, but like none of us grew up. We didn't have sheep in Wilson. (laughs) Yeah. 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 My mom grew up on a farm, but I did not. And, um, it was so violent (laughs) and like, they weren't hurting the sheep. I mean, they may, they may have been a little rough with them to kind of get them in this like very special crate to then cut off all their hair. And, but they were very clear. They're like, this doesn't hurt them. It's actually good for them. Like to, to clear the wool. And we've seen, there was some... There was a dodo video, if you ever any of you watched that, with this sheep that was like had, 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 had like sheep. gotten lost and was like caked with years of wool. Yeah. And it was just miserable and he couldn't walk. If you have, if John's ever having a bad day, send him a dodo video. Yeah, I love those things. <laughs> anyway, um, but it just was like such a visual confirmation for me of like why there are so many images throughout scripture of sheep mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, being uh, without a shepherd yeah. or like the, the sort of um, foolishness of sheep. And so a whip of cords, like, you know, we shouldn't whip animals, right? But, like, I, and I also recognize there's just a lot of animal ethics here that we just, like, aren't even touching. But um, sometimes uh, a rider's crop is used to help an animal move along, right? Or sounds or <clears throat> things, not necessarily a whip, but, like, things that, that smack and that might move the animals along with force help mm-hmm. them get to where they need to go, which is sometimes a matter of safety. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's one other piece. It's not the whole piece, but I think it's one other piece to the to, to the interpretation mm-hmm. I would suggest of this passage. Yeah, definitely that. And I was just also thinking about liturgy. This is gonna go. This is gonna be a little bit dark for a second. Ooh. I was. I'm also thinking about sheep, and Nathan Jennings' liturgy class. Uh huh. That like. Sometimes what happens to sheep is that they get eaten by humans. Mm, yeah. And um, including here. <laughs> and ultimately, okay, Jesus through our baptism, Jesus leads us to our own death. Well, yeah. I mean, you said that's like that's the thing. That's the thing. Ultimately to our resurrection. Yeah. But through death. Baptism is dying, dying and rising with Christ. Dying to a self that doesn't serve us. Mm. I think that there doesn't serve us, doesn't serve others, doesn't serve God. 
Which I think actually... Oh, sorry. Finish your thought. No, I think that's all for now. Well, I think that actually can make the the spiritual turn as we are in Lent uh-huh. to um, what we do with this scene. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I think it's important to contextualize it. It's important to recognize that religious hypocrisy is something that even Jesus calls out. Mm-hmm. And that religious hypocrisy does not like just live in these other religions, mm-hmm. but lives with like, this is our text, right? Mm-hmm. This is our story as Christians. Mm-hmm. And so we are to look at ourselves, I think, and see um, what is Jesus chasing with a whip of cords out of ourselves absolutely, and out of our systems uh, and institutions. Right. And, and, and this is a, oh, go ahead. And in a kind of way we talked about in Bible study yesterday, it was so good about like, you know, so often when we see this polemical language, our, our, our instinct is to read ourselves into the righteous ones. Yes. But really, it, really to be called out and challenged and called in to the text and a fuller relationship with God, what does it look like to read ourselves into the place of the quote-unquote the Jews who are being... The money changers. The money changers. What does it look like if we say, hmm, there's some money changer in me? Yeah. What is Jesus? What what table does Jesus need to overturn of mine? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or of this system that we are complicit in. Because I think this text is oft quoted in all four gospel contexts that are all four instances. It's oft quoted in the more activist, um, leftist, progressive, whatever you know circles that we run in as like, you know, I see there's a meme that's like, never forget when people say, be like Jesus, don't forget that turning over tables and chasing money changers out of the temple is an option. Right. Which is true. And that's I true. think, um, you know, no meme is ever meant to be some like deep, uh, nuance, but I think there's a truth to, there's an expectation that, um, Christian peace is nice. Mm-hmm. And that it is always acquiescent, mm-hmm. or that when we that when injustice is confronted, it is done so in a way that is so gentle that the oppressor suddenly realizes and comes to Jesus and ceases all their actions, as if that's not like itself a dynamic disruption, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes being called out is the most painful thing we can experience, mm-hmm. and um, and the pursuit of justice is messy. I mean, like. Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talks about peace not as an absence of conflict, but a presence of justice. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is absolutely part and parcel of what is happening here. And, and I think conflict is, is different than death-dealing violence, right? Mm, we, we, that is important. We really conflate those two yeah. in our culture of like, you know, especially being raised in the South, right? Which is, you know, um, every, every part of our... Every part of our country has a way of doing this, right? But, like, um, conflict is automatically the same thing as, as an insult or as a or as, as some sort of violence. Yeah. And, and conflict is not always so. You know, conflict can be a powerful tool for, um, for creating intimacy in the long run. For... Absolutely. For naming a boundary, for... Um, for calling forth the best in, in another person or in ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We don't really get, we don't really get to a place of, um, I don't know, reconciliation. Reconciliation without con. We we can't without conflict. So well, and that's so much of what Lent is. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked about how Lent is a repenting, so metanoia, a returning to God, mm-hmm. um, which you can outline as like 
there's the feeling of remorse, the actions of remorse and reparation, which include confession of sin. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is a conflict and it may be an internal conflict, right? Because the thing is, the thing about sinning is it doesn't make us special. We are all sinners. We will, and and, uh, to put it in more contemporary, not necessarily Christian language, we can all be real toxic. Yes, we can. All of us. Mm -hmm. We can all be abusive. Mm -hmm. We all have the capacity for harm. And if we don't acknowledge that, actually, if we just say, no, 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 it's all nice, it's all good, Jesus makes us better, without acknowledging our capacity for harm, and not just capacity, but the ways that we have harmed, Mm -hmm. then there is no possibility for restitution or reconciliation. Yeah. Right? Like, and and you have to tell the truth. And in another part of, of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I often like to add the Gloria Steinem paraphrase. The truth shall set you free, but first it will piss, piss you, you off. off. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing you say, Lizzie, is, well, I'm going to interpret what you're saying in a couple of ways. One, let's not forget who is wielding the, the whip here. Absolutely. It's and Jesus, not us. It's Jesus, not us. And so um, that's important because I think we should not too hastily identify ourselves with Jesus and and the assurance that whatever we are, um, yeah, we should not so quickly identify ourselves with Jesus. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes taking up a whip of a metaphorical whip of cords is a pro- metaphorical whip of cords <laughs> is appropriate. Sometimes conflict is called for, but we should do that with great humility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, with great humility. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say just a little bit about, is that, is that, was that finished your thought? Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to say just a little bit about, um, not in contradiction to what we said at the beginning, but in, uh, oh, about the temple, about the temple, about, and, and about in conversation with that. So as Lizzie said, I think it's super important that we avoid anti-Judaism in our pulpits. And I think, in our churches. And I think one of the ways that we do that just most easily and most accessibly is to just name the ways in which these sorts of texts have been used. Yes. Um, I think anti-Judaism, though, and naming difference in theology is not the same thing. Oh, my God, yes. Great. So, so right. So, Jesus says <laughs> at the in, in, in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Um, and in 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple of his body. <laughs> After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is claiming here to replace, I'm trying to be careful, the, the, the place of communion with God. Yes. Jesus is saying is now his very body. Yeah, that is Christianity. That is Christianity. That is different than Second Temple Judaism. That's different than uh, contemporary, contemporary Judaism. Judaism. That is okay. Yeah. So and oh, and sorry, I think to we and I think in interreligious dialogue, if we don't sort of name difference, not in a sort of way of like other people need to agree with that difference. Absolutely. But like we're. It's a. It becomes a boring and sort of hegemonic and dare I say colonial world. Oh, for sure. If we if we say if we operate on least common denominator alone, mm. it's sort of it it 
flattens the great mosaic of creation and uh, of humanity. And so, you know, we are. We are a different religion. Yeah. And so I made a little TikTok about this last... uh, I think I made it on Sunday and posted it Monday. Anyway, the point is, um, I think there's often this very well-meaning desire that I... I have exclusively heard from progressive Christians, but I'm not, or from Christians, but I'm not saying that it's exclusive to Christianity. But this desire to say all religions are ultimately different paths to the same end, or all religions are different manifestations of the same God. And that makes me really itchy because it sounds a lot like saying, I'm colorblind in response to racism. Exactly. Or I'm colorblind as as the tool of justice and liberation. Right. And what that does is exactly what Jonathan said. It flattens the difference and it, and it, it um, actually puts us in the position of God mm-hmm. and of other people. Right. Because if you have a conversation with someone who is devout from another faith and they agree with you on that point, great. If they don't, what you are saying is that you know better than they do. Exactly. And that you know their faith better than they do. And y'all, I both of us have bachelors in religion. And there is so much I don't know. Every time mm-hmm. I go on TikTok Live, people ask me questions about... Uh, Judaism, which I actually have studied quite a bit. And, and half time, I'm like, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> and that's because, like, we have That's not three, our faith. That's not our faith. And we have three degrees in our faith. I mean, like, because within right. my, my our, both of our bachelors of religion, we really focused on Christianity. And we still don't know everything there is to know about our own faith, right? That means. And so you have, if we cannot name difference um, without that being violent, we're screwed. Yeah, right. Like we have to be able to name what is different between us to learn from those differences and sometimes just to hold that they're different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and move, um, still with companionship, compassion and curiosity. Right. And curiosity and mystery. Right. And the acknowledgement that like we can lean fully into our faith. And I'm, I'm about to say something about the temple of Jesus's body, just on a devotional level. Um, and hold the mystery of a God of great love and expanse and For just sure. hold that mystery. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't really get to solve that yeah. in and of ourselves, um, which is kind of hard. We want to solve things. Well, um, and I think Christianity, especially in the United States in the last several hundred years has been very focused on solving things. Yes. Yes. Solving the problem of your lack of salvation through right. salvation, like a, like an equation. Right. And just before you talk about the temple, I just want to say my, my substitution, my offering uh, from a Christian perspective to the all religions are different paths to the same end is we believe that every single person is made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And therefore, every single person has something to teach us about God. And every Absolutely. single person has um, bears that image. And mm-hmm. so we can, we can, I lean into that and I just let Jesus figure out the salvation bit because it's not really our call. It's never been up to me. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think that's really really good, Lizzie. Um, and then I just wanted to say something about like for our own preaching life, our own devotion and prayer. Like, what does it look like to encounter Jesus here in the second temple? And I'm sorry, in the second chapter of John, early early on in Jesus's journey, ultimately a, a journey that would lead him to to the cross, through the cross to resurrection saying already here in the second chapter that his body, which will be raised, is, mm. is the temple. Mm. What, is it, what does it mean for us? And I'm just going to ask the questions. I don't know what it looks like for all of us. 
what does it look like to be able to know, rely on the fact for us Christians that we can reliably encounter the presence of God in the body of Jesus? You know, and, and um, I remember Nathan also talking, Nathan Jennings, our liturgy professor at Southwest, talking about, you know, the, the um, you know, sort of the corporeal presence of God, so the embodied presence of God. No, no, no. The corporeal presence of God is in, with God in the heavenly places. But the corporate presence of God yeah, yeah, yeah. is corporate is the gathered community. Mm. is the church, is each other. Mm. So what does it look like to encounter um, a temple, a temple where we can reliably meet and encounter the presence of God in each other, um, bound up in a, in a Jesus who is still so present with us and offers himself so readily for mm. us to commune with. Yeah. I miss you, Christ. <laughs> yeah, was, all that to say, I really miss that too. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a chief way of like, you know, regardless of what we're feeling that day, regardless for us and in, in sacramental traditions, folks that, um, yeah, uh, that that really centralize Eucharist, baptism, and, and Eucharist other meaning communion or communion, last supper, Lord's supper, the part with the bread and wine. Like we can we can reliably meet Jesus there. Like there are whether other, we feel it or not, whether we feel it or not, there are many other ways to meet Jesus. Um, but we believe in our theology, at least in the Episcopal Church, that you can reliably meet Jesus in the Eucharist. Every always, time. Every, every time. time. Yeah. Well, that has been our take on this temple scene for Lent three. Um, really excited. We have a special guest coming next week. And um, just delighted to be back with Fathers Know Best. Yeah. Um, sorry, it's a little late, y'all. It's Lent. We're a dual clergy household. This is a homegrown project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we doing what we can. Thanks for listening, though. Thank you so much. This is produced by me, the Reverend Lizzie McManusdale, from our bedroom floor. Our music is by Dysfunction underscore AL, used with a Creative Commons license. Um, and we're just so delighted y'all are here. Uh, links to our churches are always in the show notes. So if you want to connect with us, we are worshiping virtually right now, and we'd love to hear from you. And if you want to reach out and be connected with an Episcopal congregation in your area, we know priests everywhere. 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 We would love to connect you. (laughs) (laughs) Blessings. Bye, y'all.